You're listening to Artisan Hackers, the podcast dedicated to the communities building and using new digital tools of creation. We talk to programmers, artists, poets, musicians, bot makers, educators, and designers in an effort to critically look at both online art making and the history of technology and the internet. We're interested in where we've been and speculative ideas on the future. This episode is supported by Purchase College. I'm your host, Lee Tussman. In this episode, we're talking about the phenomenon of the offline internet in Cuba, known as El Paquete Seminal, or the Weekly Package. To understand some of the conditions that have led to El Paquete Seminal, it's important to understand the history of the Cold War between the United States and Cuba. The United States has been in a Cold War against Cuba since the 1950s. Its place in embargo against Cuba starting with President Eisenhower in 1958, originally against weapons, but in 1960 extending to almost all exports. The embargo prevents exporting almost all goods into the country, whether that's cars or electronics, and only in 2000 did the United States begin to allow food and humanitarian supplies to reach the country. On the Cuban side, the government's officially socialist, based on the one-party, one-state principle. The Communist Party of Cuba is the leading force of society in the state, originally led by Fidel Castro from 1926 to 2016, and now by his brother Raul. The island nation is home to 11 million people. Cuban media is tightly controlled by the government, and they've only begun to allow internet access over the past decade, first to select individuals, and then in the past few years, an extremely limited amount of government-licensed Wi-Fi hotspots and internet cafes. In addition, as a result of the U.S. embargo, Cubans cannot access, for example, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and many other online services. As a result of these restrictions, one of the main ways most of the country accesses media today is through El Paquete Seminal, or in English, the weekly package. El Paquete is a phenomenon in Cuba, reaching almost the entire population, and it consists of a weekly one terabyte USB hard drive containing materials like movies, articles, and locally advertised goods. I spoke with the collaborative artist team of Julia Wiest and Nestor Sire, who have been researching and making art about El Paquete for the last five years. Julia is an American, Nestor is Cuban. I spoke with them over the internet with Julia in Brooklyn and Nestor in Havana. Due to the constraints of both the embargo and the constrained media and communication in his country, Nestor had to use two different VPN services and to tether his laptop to his phone connection in order to speak with me. Uh, My name is Nestor Sire. Living in Havana, and the focus of my uh, research is, uh, you know, digital connectivity, informal ways to uh, digital distribution here in Cuba, but also I'm interested in finding different creative ways to distribution or circulate of digital material in different parts of the world. I'm interested in this topic as well, and I really wanted to find out more about Nestor and Julia's collaborations relating to El Paquete. Nestor and I have been collaborating since 2016. 
Um, most of the focus of our collaboration is the Cuban, Cuban phenomenon called El Paquete Semanal, uh, but we both share an interest in cultural record keeping and what that record keeping means for uh, shared understanding and shared notions of history. So we have created a variety of works on those themes since 2016. And how did you two originally meet? We met through a mutual friend uh, that connected us when I was visiting Cuba. And when Nestor and I met, it was totally remarkable because I had never met another artist that I felt like I had more in common with in my whole career. And it was this interesting process of beginning to talk. And the more we talked about Nestor's work, because I was visiting his studio, the more I was realizing that we were like art twins. But he didn't know because I had nothing to show him. And I said, just wait, I'm going to leave a hard drive because I was heading back to New York. And when you see my work, you'll understand why I'm so overwhelmed right now. Um, and he did. And uh, we began long distance communication, which was very challenging between the US and Cuba um, for technical reasons, I'm sure we'll discuss. And that began a, a long multi-year partnership where uh, we worked within and around the restrictions that were in place uh, in both of our countries and for a variety of geopolitical factors, most, notice, most notably the US embargo. And here we are. And just maybe even to give a very small window into some of the restrictions that um, you're dealing with, Nestor, can you say a little bit about how you connected uh, with me right now? Yeah. Um, okay. The situation is because of the embargo, a lot of service uh, that have like, uh, you know, for example, a base in, in, in United States are blocked for Cuba. Uh, many service of Google, everything in relation to App Store is blocked, and uh, and and for that, for for getting access access to this service, will normally use VPN. The thing is that almost all the internet, like in my personal experience here in Cuba, all the internet that I receive, all all my connection is using my phone. I am almost never using my Mac because for using the Mac, I will need to go to some hot spot or hot or hotel lobbies with internet uh, for getting Wi-Fi, you know, access to internet. And I always use my phone. Normally, for a VPN, you need to have like um, a credit card or you know, like a some bank account. Also for the free um, for the free time that you are using the VPN, do you need putting some information in the system that you can pay for the VPN if you like to continue using the VPN in the future? But this is another problem. The Cuban not have any um, bank account that is actually working in the international you know uh, world. And is it some of these kinds of issues that you've been dealing with that's what led to El Paquete Seminal? Yeah. So essentially, after the Cuban Revolution, the government 
nationalized all media distribution. So that included print, but also radio, TV, uh, any form that was in place for the circulation of various forms of media. As a result, uh, independent networks uh, developed so that from citizen to citizen, bypassing the government, uh, media could be distributed. So this began at first with um, paperback novels. So for example, Corin Tellado is a, a Spanish author and uh, romance novels, uh, what we call Western sort of cowboy stories um, were very popular and they circulated first within cities and then between cities as distributors within cities would trade with each other for fresh inventory. After paperback novels, it moved on to incorporate as well um, magazines, and then eventually VHS, VCD, Betacam, uh, DVD. And as the technology changed for the way that people were consuming media, the formats changed through these distribution networks as well. But they remained in place where for a, you know, a variety of different prices, depending on the format, you could rent very cheaply a book, a uh, uh, VHS, a movie, you know, shows from your neighbor's living room or from your local distributor in the city who was engaging in these trade networks between other cities within Cuba. So the Paquete Seminal is actually just the next revolution of technology in that long chain of distribution. Uh, when internet became available within Cuba for a select group of people, and then in the subsequent years, greater and greater groups of people, although still highly limited, censored and restricted by the government, uh, groups developed to aggregate and download media from a variety of places online, as well as, uh, as Nestor said, digital capture from TV channels that could be picked up in Miami. All of that digital content then gets packaged into hard drives that can, that can accommodate one terabyte of media and then distributed throughout the country, person to person, so hand to hand. So you'll meet up with someone and copy from their hard drive to your hard drive. You may then share it with your neighbors, your families, your friends, um, sometimes for free, sometimes for a small amount of money. And through this very miraculous, miraculous human to human, very lo-fi way of copying that's entirely outside of any digital internet network, this media reaches what we estimate to be a large majority of the Cuban population every week. And can you say a little bit more about what's on El Paquete Seminal? I, I understand from what you were saying earlier and from some research that there's TV shows, there's um, some magazines on it, for example. What are some of the, what's some of the other content that you would see in the, in the weekly packet? Yeah, I think one of the most interesting pieces of original content that you can find that's local specifically to Cuba in the Paquete Seminal is advertisements. So there's very limited space for ads within the nationalized system because it's still a socialist country that has tight economic restrictions in place by the government, uh, one of which is to limit uh, advertising and promotion. So you don't see billboards for companies. You may see billboards for public programs and cultural events within Havana, for example, but uh, you don't see ads in newspapers, on the radio, on TV, but you do find them in, a, in El Paquete Semanal. And it's a very interesting look into the emerging entrepreneurial economy. So ads for restaurants, for 
uh, services, for beauty salons, for clothing stores, for real estate agencies, because even that is fascinating that home private home ownership was only possible uh, in the last 10 years in the period after 1959. So it's a really interesting way to um, to see not just entertainment materials, but also indicators of larger economic changes in Cuba. But of course, also there is tons of entertainment materials, everything from local uh, cubatons so or reggaeton from Cuba, music videos and um, audio files, um, like you said, digital magazines, shows that are what we would sort of associate with like um, Access Hollywood, you know, sort of like celebrity and um, host-based fun local cultural shows. I'm actually also curious how it gets made. I'm, in my head, I have some idea like there's some team or an individual working in like a basement or a garage or some or someplace somewhere and kind of putting it together. But I'm also curious, like, is there a single um Paquete, or is it actually multiple ones that happen? Or, yeah, I'm curious about a little bit what you know about how it gets created. Yeah, there's a couple different brands. I mean, brand is just the best way to say it of of paquetes. Uh, the sort of technical term, Cuban term, is matrices, or matriz is the singular version, where uh, teams work together to aggregate the content. And typically, this falls along lines of interest. So someone on the team just really loves YouTube videos. So they know the ones that are great. They download all of them every week, and they, they throw it in the pile along with everything else in the folder that's designated for that. Um, Someone else loves novelas, so they are downloading the soap operas every week. Um, typically, the aggregators are people who have uh, unlimited access to internet. So often this falls along the lines of someone who potentially works for the state uh, communication uh, department. Um there's a variety of ways and without, you know, sort of revealing too much, um, it, it is a combination of, uh, recording, like I said, um, channels that come through from, from Miami, people with, uh, access to Netflix account that are hosted and paid for in other countries that can record off of, uh, those channels, as well as your typical, uh, pirate, Bay and other sort of um, pirated media sources. And those folks work together, uh, compile, and then there's single points of distribution under these sort of brand names that then transport media to other distributors throughout the island, as Nestor said, on bike, plane, uh, bus, car, motorcycle, everything you can imagine. Uh, basically backpacks full of hard drives that then get copied in those cities and it it goes outwards as a as a rhizomatic model. And I'm also curious how someone gets involved in terms of getting their own material onto it. Like for example, Nestor, I understand you were involved in distributing work through El Paquete. Do you, can you say a little bit more about that? You know, normally for putting something inside the packet, you need to pay for that. In my case, um, I am I create this space for contemporary art that is actually not a business. Also, because uh, the development of uh, visual art in Cuba not have any relation with the um, you know with commercial artwork. 
is more like a, a project that I create because, uh, you know, after research about the phenomenon, at some point I be close to one of the matrices. And they they was interested in diversification of his content, you know, like uh, diversify the, the the kind of material they, that they have. But you know, the weekly packet have like a two uh, big limitations, like a two um, rules. That as the first one is like a not political materials, and the second one is not pornography. These limitations are almost, you know, uh, like uh, are like uh, the big limitations of Cuba in general. It's not something that do you, you know, like uh, it's something that everybody know. The pornography is like a big deal, and also everything in relation with politics in Cuba is very, very strong. And this is why the paquete, uh, you know, continue in this kind of, I don't know, like a, a, a gray area, like. It's not completely legal, but it's not illegal. Is is exist because the government, you know, allow, and 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 also because the kind of content that you can find in the packet and not have any relation with politics. And this is more or less the the you know the way that some people create content for the packet and the kind of content that the people can put in in the packet. Can you also say a little bit more about your collaboration together? Um, you know, you've been working for years researching El Paquete Seminal and, and, and working on it. Can you say a little bit about your art projects together and how they relate? One of the most unique things about the Paquete is its ephemerality. So because technical equipment is in short supply, very difficult to import, um, and there's not as much of a, a day-to-day need to save previous weeks of the Picate Seminal, they don't exist. So a hard drive will be copied over from last week to this week with all the new content. Because otherwise, as you can imagine, you'd have to buy a new terabyte hard drive every week. Um, as artists, Nestor and I saw that and thought about all of the unique original material, uh, both digital and technical, cultural that was getting lost every time um, the previous week was overwritten. So we set out at very first project to just create a one-year archive of the Picate Seminal. It sounds very simple. It was incredibly challenging, partially because, as I mentioned, there is such a limited supply of high capacity, and especially in 2016, where a one terabyte drive was much bulkier and more expensive than it is today, it's been only a few years, but the change um, is significant. It was a challenge to aggregate that equipment, uh, keep it in working order, and then move it into and out of the country as we exhibited internationally. So for example, any traveling passenger. So every time I went uh, to Cuba, I was only allowed to bring two hard drives with me and your upon entry. Um, if you have more, uh, they will be seized or you're allowed to keep it, but then you have to um, prove a serial number that you're taking it back to the United States, in my case, with you as you're leaving the country. So they they understand that it's not being left behind. Um, we use a variety of different creative problem-solving techniques um, involving other collaborations, services in the gray 
market in Miami where you could pay travelers to bring things for you into and out of the country. Um, and eventually we built a uh, 64 terabyte archive with some you know, redundancy. And we were able to exhibit it internationally. We have now um, four copies of the archive. And it is something that uh, we're thinking about long-term uh, where it makes sense to save and preserve this material. And I should say we were not able to create that archive without the full collaboration of one of the two uh, major matrices in, in Havana who worked with us every single week um, in collaboration to create this uh, this digital preservation system, essentially, that we created. Uh, so that was the centerpiece of a lot of our projects. Um, but Nestor can explain some of the others that we created to contextualize and share and interrogate and intervene in the systems um, that we were exploring. And Nestor, maybe you can also talk about um, the process that we took to meet with every major distributor in the country, which was one of our most ambitious efforts. For us, was very, very interesting how the paquete is changing between, you know, cities. We're traveling for two weeks uh, for all the country. Cuba is not so big. And we'll, we'll, we'll using like uh, the normal uh, structure for, for, for the paquete, like we'll using the same bus, the same taxis, uh, the same uh, motorcycles that the people from the paquete use using for, for the distribution. And we'll meet with age, uh, big submatrice in each city of Cuba. One other project that we did that really helped contextualize some of this work was we hired one of the advertising agencies that is used by businesses to create ads for the paquete to create what we call an infomercial uh, for the idea of the paquete semanal. So essentially to explain what the phenomenon is, basically what we're doing now. More importantly, for the first time, businesses had the means to make copies of their recordings in order to multiply inventory. In these years, a new term emerged to refer to those who gathered and trafficked content for black market distribution. They were referred to as matrices. Matriz translates to matrix, but also womb, the place of origin at the beginning of the chain. In the mid-2000s, matrices began to develop brand identities, visual styles, and logos. So that's very characteristic of the type of work that Nestor and I make, where we're using the system itself, the advertising companies that already exist uh, because of and for the paquete, to create a collaborative artwork that then explains the paquete to an international audience. For us, it's always uh, um, very, very interesting how the, the, the rise working upside Cuba in relation with, you know, like we explained, for example, for exhibiting in the Queen's Museum, we'll, we'll, we'll work in, in collaboration with a lawyer or, um, I don't know, Julia, maybe you can explain more about that, the technical uh, name of, of the lawyer, like a Rye lawyer, not? Yeah, intellectual property for contemporary art. was impossible to show, even show, like uh, some videos that we actually receiving from the paquete, but... In Cuba, we don't have any problem with that because the you know the system. 
but in in the Queen's Museum was a big big problem. And we're working for many months. Julia working directly with this situation for many months to find a way that we can exhibit. But even you know outside Cuba, the the context changed. I'll share one really funny anecdote, which is that for one exhibition, we contacted every copyright holder that we could from one week of the Paquete to ask their permission to allow us to share digitally with visitors to the exhibition a copy of their file in the exact same way it was shared digitally uh, in Cuba. And of course, this was an enormous effort. We had a lot of help. Um, it's just a lot of thousands of emails and, and research to find copyright holders, even for the different uh, materials. But one producer that we spoke to for Sharknado 4, which is you know a sci-fi movie in the Sharknado franchise, um, was so thrilled to learn that their movie was circulating in essentially what's a media black market, uh, you know, in in Cuba. It's so lined up with the mythology that they were trying to build around that film and its reception globally that they were so excited. They gave us full rights to share it. Uh, they asked if we needed help with anything, you know, anything they could do to support our project. So obviously, on the one hand, some people. Uh, you know, we're not thrilled to learn that their their media had been uh, pirated and shared millions of times over, but others um, sort of understood a larger geopolitical picture because there's many cases where Cuban consumers cannot legally pay for their content. So the you know streaming platforms, um, broadcast networks. Um, other subscription services are not legally allowed because of the embargo. So that production company, that uh, streaming service cannot legally accept money from Cuban consumers. And so it is this gray area where if you can't legally buy it, you know, it, does that mean that you're just completely banned from, from seeing and sharing that content ever uh, in your context? So it did produce a lot of interesting conversations around why media is made, why it's shared, who different producers want their audience to be, and what the limitations are in a, you know both a technical and cultural context. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that's where I'll stop it for now. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show today. You've been listening to Artists and Hackers. Our guests today are Nestor Cire and Julia Wiest. I'm your host, Lee Tussman. Our audio producer is Max Ludlow. Coordination and web design by Caleb Stone. This episode was supported by Purchase College. Our music in this episode is Algorithms by Chad Crouch, Drake Meditation Spirit by Lobo Loco, Note Manual by The Books, and This Is Difference by Ketza. You can find out more about Nestor and Julia and links to their websites as well as past episodes of the show on our website, artistsandhackers.org. You can find us on Instagram at Artists and Hackers, and we're on Twitter at Artists Hacking. You can write to us at hello at artistsandhackers.org. And if you enjoy the show, please let a friend know. Thanks. Thanks.